0: I want to say good evening, friends. It just seems like we've been hanging out together for the past five days actually the the more I sit up here and the more we spend time with each other and and by now uh we've Eugene and I have met all of you because we've rotated we've met every single one of you in meetings, so it just seems like you know we're all just hanging out contemplating death together, so yeah, so I have to say I feel kind of informal tonight a little bit. I mean, I have a whole long talk, but, but at the same time, part of me just feels like I'm chatting with a bunch of people I've known for a few days and, and appreciate very much because you're hanging in here. And just to talk to you about some thoughts, some reflections I have. Um, so, yeah. So before I start, actually, I want to ask you, how are you? Shout out a few words if you would. I have a thumbs up back there. Yeah. Two thumbs up even. Okay. More thumbs up. Tell me, what, shout a few words. How are you doing? How are you? You're good. Okay, what else? What's happening right here? Sleepy. Great. What else is happening? Headache. Exhausted. Great. Great. What, what, great. Exhausted headache. What else is happening? Tell me. What is here right now? Content, okay. Settled. More settled. settled more. Yeah, okay. What else is happening, friends? Happy. Sad about ending. Sad about ending. We're kind of like, yeah. <laughs> death contemplation is ending. <laughs> is the di- <laughs> Death contemplation is dying. Oh my god! <laughs> Dig that. Grief, denial, anger, (laughs) acceptance, all the stages. What else is happening? Feel spacious, spacious. great, what else? Less body pain, less body pain, pain. okay, what else? I heard something else. Disconnect between how tired your body is and how awake your mind is. What else? Full of emotion. Full of emotion right now. Yeah. What else? Distracted. Distracted, okay. Great. What else is here? Wait, wait. Buffeted, buffeted? What do you mean by buffeted? Oh, in the waves of different emotions, buffeted. I like that word. Cool. and. You're clinging to the dharma. (laughs) Clinging. Let go. Go, let go. What else is here? Curious. Interested. What's next? I don't know. Let's discover what's next. This is great. What else is here? What is here? Supported. Supported. Nice. Yeah. Fascinated. Mm. Warmth. It is kind of warm in the room, but, but but yeah, I know warmth. Not. Yeah. <laughs> what else? What else is here? Touched by your bravery. Yeah. 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 Compassion. Compassion is here. Yeah. What else, anything else that's here, what else is here? new energy where was it? The, oh, there's a new new energy, new energy, love for everyone here, mm. yeah, you want to come up here and see everyone it's really sweet. that's what I'm feeling, looking around. It's really sweet. Yeah, that's a good thing about being a practice leader. You get to sit up here, like, oh, way open ears, like, oh, Or for your fellow yogis, not too much, but... What else? What else is here? Inspired by everyone's creativity. Yes, this afternoon, especially. That was fun. That was very, like, who could, who could have thought death was so much fun? Death, writing poetry about death. Could be... Yeah, what else is here? Ah, joy. Yeah. That is here too. Yeah. Loving this land. Mm. And the land loves you back. You know, it it just reminds me when I was a little kid, my mom, who has dementia now, um, used to have really interesting sense of humor. And, uh, and as a kid I remember being confused. I remember as a, like maybe four or five years, th- maybe four year old I've just kind of started to get a hang of language, but not quite as a young kid. And I would say, oh I love this orange. And my mom would say, the orange loves you too. Or something. There was something in Farsi. Maybe I can't quite translate it, but there was just like he loves you back. And I would just be kind of confused. Anyway. <laughs> It it made sense at some point, but anyway, the land loves you back. I pass that to to, to you from my mom. Yeah, what else? Maybe we're all turkeys. Yeah, are we <laughs> turkeys having a human dream, or are we <laughs> humans having a turkey dream? Thinking we're human. You know that saying about are you a butterfly having a dream? You're. Hu- How does that go? There, there are few t- choices. Okay, like, let me see. Are you a human? Oh, yeah. It's 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 a. I think it's a Zen. Uh, is It's a Zen master. Am I a human having a dream that I'm a butterfly, or am I a butterfly having dreaming that I'm a human? I think. Yeah. Eugene is like I don't know. <laughs> let's just let's just go with it. Let's just. I'm winging it. Yeah, okay. I think that's how it goes. I could look it up, but anyway. Yeah. One more. Oh, another time. I'll tell you the story of how I came to this country another time. It doesn't involve death. And I well, it could probably, but um, yeah. I'll, I'll keep it death related. Yeah. So there's a lot here, there's a lot here. We're sitting in a sea of emotion, with, with joy, with happiness, with gratitude, with tiredness, with fatigue, with, with so much, with love for everyone, with sadness that its ending, with happiness that we're here, delight in our courage. There's so much we're sitting in, appreciating, this human experience, these turkeys having these human experiences on these cushions or vice versa. In fact, it reminds me that there's a quote. Um, it's timely to share. Um, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was a French philosopher, paleontologist and Jesuit priest, um he said, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. I, I like that. It fits with the theme of the turkeys. Spiritual beings having a human experience. So so the humanity in this room, all this humanity that is sitting on its seed is living, breathing, feeling emotions, sensing, and all of the humanity in this room, people you've been sitting with, walking with, doing reflection with, eating with, sharing dorms with. I wanna start with the reflection that, you know, all of us, every single one of us In this room, we will be dead in a hundred years. Not a single one of us in this room will be alive. Let's just take a moment to take that in. And it's okay, actually look around. Why don't you look around? Look around at everyone, just appreciating the humanity that is here and none of us will be here in a hundred years. None of us. We won't be here. We won't be here in a hundred years. This is a r- room full of dead people. <laughs> you finished my <laughs> sentence. Or <laughs> not dead yet people. <laughs> and you're walking with dead people. You're eating with not dead corpses. <laughs> Which reminds me, I, um, I had this image some some months ago. I forget. I saw somebody had this really interesting T-shirt, and I think it said some some. It was something death related, like like uh, live corpse or or corpse walking or some things like pointing. Out. And I thought, oh, before the next Mahasati retreat. I'm going to order T-shirts for everyone. And one day, where everybody's going to wear them, and that will be our contemplation. Everybody's going to look around and see all these corpses running around and eating. And and so, obviously, it didn't happen. You don't have the T-shirts. But, but oh, hi, little guy. Excuse me for a moment. Do you want to... <sighs> Anne Klein, Buddhist scholar, says, life is a party on death row. It is a party and it is on death row. (laughs) Recognizing mortality means we are willing to see what is true. Seeing what is true is grounding. It brings us into the present moment. I love that. Life is a party on death row. It's just, it's on death row. It's just going to happen, right? And it, and it is a party. Too. It's it's yes and. It's acknowledging both aspects of that. It's a party on death row. And how seeing, recognizing immortality is really the courage. I appreciate um, mentioning that, appreciating the courage we all have here doing this practice, because it takes courage to, to be willing to see what's true, and what's true really brings us, it grounds us in the present moment, right here, right now. And and just to say also, being in the present moment, you know, it's, it's not, you know, not to privilege present moment in and of itself, the reason why we keep saying be be here now present moment is because awakening happens when you're here when you're planning for the future remembering the past as you all know already I don't have to tell you it's hard to be awake right it's in the present moment that awakening and really opening up to 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 life to death to that other dimension to everything happens when you're right here present so it's it's like a doorway and not to not to like pull, put gold leaf around the doorway and kiss the doorway, the doorway, present moment is all. No, it's just the doorway, but it's a very important doorway, this present moment. So, for my talk tonight, this is kind of the plan. I'll tell you what it is and let's we'll see how I'll stick to it or not. So, I wanted to talk about really the three. Interrelated objectives. Uh, objectives, such a big word. Kind of goals, what we're doing here basically with death contemplation. And in a way, it's all in the title. It's all in the title of the retreat. Contemplating death, awakening to life. So one aspect of it is preparing for for death. Preparing for our death. Contemplating death as a preparation for that, for the mystery that we don't know. I'll talk more about it. The second one is awakening to life, really. And as you've probably got it by now, there's been quite an emphasis on this retreat about awakening to life and, and appreciating this short, precious human life, um, this opportunity, this amazing opportunity we have to be alive. and the uh, the third aspect also is awakening it's about awakening actually this everything that we do all the practices are in the service of liberation awakening freedom nibbana whatever word you want to call it and death contemplation is a way to wake up, not just to wake up to death, not just to wake up to life, but just to wake up period, to wake up to see the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, um, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self, through this death contemplation that we've been doing. So these are the three things I kind of want to talk about tonight, these three bullet points and get more into them. So with the first bullet point, with uh, preparing preparing for our death, pre- preparing for, for death through this practice of letting go. So as Eugene talked about last night with the teachings to Anathapindika, the moment of death can actually be a more the moment when we liberate, when we wake up. That moment can be a significant moment if it is met with preparation. Um, so that, not not just that we're not afraid and scared, like, oh my God, I'm dying! Ah! Not just that, but also... Um, have enough peace, have enough preparation, ease and peace to be able to let go in that moment. And not so much to control what happens. Oh, I'm gonna do death contemplation so that when I die I can control my mind and I'll be in the house. No, it's all about letting go. It's all about letting go. Learning to let go so that we can actually let go and And that moment can actually be a moment of liberation. And Anattapindaka teachings is a teaching on liberation at the moment of death. It's it's actually quite a significant teaching because he wasn't a liberated, if you noticed, he wasn't a liberated person. But with that teaching in the moment of death, letting go, letting go, letting go, he was fully liberated. So that is significant in and of itself that that moment of death, it can, you know, it's not to say, you know, party your whole life in that moment of death, you know, but but it is a matter of preparation that gives me hope that, hey, if I don't make it up until then, that moment is a significant moment too. If, If I have practiced really letting go, that moment can be a moment of awakening, liberation, fully letting go into the deathless, into, I'll talk more about that. I want to read a story of of Mingyur Rinpoche. Um, So Mingyur Rinpoche, he um, he's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, um, and he um, he took who took off... So in the Tibetan tradition, there's uh, going on three-year retreats, going on long retreats. So what he did a few years ago, he just... And he was really busy. He was really busy teaching, teaching, teaching. And um, he uh, basically made secret plans to disappear. He didn't tell anyone. He didn't take anything. He just... One day he was gone without his passport, without anything. Just his robes, and he was gone, into um, what would be actually a four-year-long wandering retreat, wandering the streets, um, and people wouldn't recognize him most of the time. I mean, actually, actually, all the time. There's one case where somebody caught up with him um, for a short time, but so, so, and then he resurfaced. He resurfaced and. And what I want to read for you is um, he had a near-death experience and with the practice that he had in letting go, letting go to to hear what happened. So, and this, if you want to read more about this, for those who like references, this is in, appeared in the, uh, let's see, um, March issue of Lion's Roar magazine. Uh, And I think, yeah, this was March last year, so 2016, March 2016, Lions Roar magazine. So the interviewer asks, what was it like to go from being an important Buddhist teacher living in comfort in a monastery to an anonymous sadhu, the ascetic Hindu yogis who beg and live on the streets of India? He answers, I had a strong determination to be on the streets, but I was naive to think I could live on the streets right away. It took me a while. Giving up my identity as a monk was one thing, and of course, I also had to let go of my desire for comfort, food, and the basic necessities of life. Even the desire to be safe." It was a good way to practice my meditation on letting go. Wow. Now that's some letting go. Yeah. It continues. What was, uh, the questioner asks, What was the best experience you had? Remember, what was the best experience you had? It was actually a near death experience I had in Kushinagar, the holy place where the Buddha died. Not long after I started my retreat, I got very sick with vomiting and diarrhea. And one morning, my health was so bad that I was sure I was going to die. When I got sick, it felt like I went through some kind of wall of solid attachment to my body, my comfort, my robes, and even the idea of Mingyur Rinpoche. I slowly let go, let go, let go let go. In the end, I even let go of myself. I thought, if I'm going to die, okay. If I'm going to die, no problem. At that moment, I didn't have any fear. I had some kind of dissolution, as they call it in the texts, and lost touch with my physical body altogether, Then I had a wonderful experience. There was no thought, no emotion, no concept, no subject or object. Mine was clear and wakeful, like a blue sky with the sun shining, transparent and all pervasive. It's very, very difficult to describe. It cannot really be put into words. Then At a certain point, I had the thought, okay, this is not the time for me to die. This was somehow related to compassion mind. Then I could feel my body again, and I opened my eyes. I stood up to get some water and suddenly became unconscious and collapsed. I woke up in the clinic with a glucose drip in my arm. The next day, I recovered and left the clinic. What happened then? The questioner asked, the interviewer. After this experience, my mind felt so fresh and my meditation really improved. I could appreciate everything. All resistance was gone. And I felt like I was one with the environment. I could go on the streets and rejoice in everything. I could go on the streets and rejoice in everything. I love that. It's the full letting go, the complete letting go. If I'm going to die, okay. If I'm going to die, no problem. It's letting go, it's simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. Of course, he has a lot of practice to get to that point, which I wish for us all. So preparing for that moment, and we don't know what that moment is going to be like, right? Whether we will be on our deathbed, surrounded by family, whether it'll be many years from now after a long illness or old age, or whether it'll be when we're in a car driving, or when we're in the Strait of Magellan on a boat, who knows when, when the last moment might come. We have no idea. We really don't know. We really, really don't know. We have some thoughts, some imagination, some assumptions, but we really, really don't know, and it's okay to make peace with that and Something that has been brought up in some group meetings, and I wanted to just touch on it um is um you know we have a lot of curiosity about what next um are we going to be reborn? Is this rebirth thing? Is it? Is it true? Is it not? What you know? Where do you stand? So there's past lives, etc. Um, and what do we happen? What what's going to happen? So, um, so two things I want to say about that. Oh, you really like my screen, little guy, don't you? Okay, little fly that's attracted to the light here. Um, so. I have to say for, for, for myself, of course, I've been very curious and I've uh, done a fair bit of reading of near-death experiences because I've been so curious um, and also reading about um, research on past life um, evidence. So, so what I'd like to share a little bit with you is some of the things that I've read and found. And in no way either do I believe them completely to say this is what's happening and neither do I am offering them for you to believe in. Um, it's just for consideration. Okay, because really the truth is we don't know. We really, really don't know. No one has really, really come back after completely dying. I mean, it's not possible, right? It's uh, You can't die and... So near death experience are just that. They're near death. They're not death experiences. So um and and in some ways it is not helpful to try to to think about so much, oh what happens <laughs> then, what happens um so so I like to offer both of these again with this caveat. So if the caveat is okay, if we're on board with the caveat of don't believe don't take as truth, the things I'm about to say just kind of hold it very lightly, okay, yes, cool, okay, hold them very lightly, and yet, since they have come up, I feel it's it's kind of it's appropriate if if they're not shared here then then where would they be? so hold them lightly so one thing about um research on past lives um, there is um there's a, um, a Canadian-American psychiatrist who, um, Ian Stevenson was his name. He's passed away now. And he worked at the University of Virginia School of Medicine for, for 50 years. And um, he was quite curious about rebirth. By the way, there is a difference between rebirth and reincarnation. And I like to explain that. It came up in the group. So, In the Hindu tradition, there's the idea of reincarnation. So the soul, the atta, the self, gets incarnated again. Whereas in Buddhism, the idea is rebirth, which is not the same soul, atta, that center, doesn't continue, but it's the karmic potentiality that continues. So the best way I have to explain that is this metaphor I've come up with, which is the billiard ball metaphor, simile. Thus have I heard. So if, so if um, think of a billiard ball that's moving, okay? Billiard ball that's moving. And it comes and hits another billiard ball. And then this billiard ball starts moving, okay? It's not the same billiard ball. What has been transferred is the kinetic energy, right? Right? So the kinetic energy is the karmic potentiality from one life passed on to the next, that's rebirth. That's what, is the, that, that's what um, is the belief in Buddhism. Okay. Again, you don't have to take it on. I'm just offering so you know what's in the territory. Reincarnation, the Hindu belief. Imagine the billiard ball was a green billiard ball was moving and then gets to a point and a dollop of red paint is on it now. It's the same ball the same exact ball with all the bruises and everything is just now has a new paint on it that's reincarnation it's the same soul same center so just to get the difference between the two so the research um ian stevenson um he was a pretty well respected actually psychiatrist and he um He um, collected, um, so the idea that he was working with that uh, emotions, memories, and even actually physical injuries in the form of birthmarks get transferred um, from one life to another. And he traveled extensively for over a period of 40 years investigating 3,000 cases of children around the world who claim to remember past lives. And he's documented all of it and I've read some cases and there are some that are actually quite compelling. Um, and there are some photographs of where birthmarks are and where the children uh, remember being maimed or killed or, or, or um, died. So again, it's not conclusive proof, not, but um, interesting, very interesting. Um, and and I like this quote actually from Carl Sagan. So, as you know, Carl Sagan is a founding member of a group um, that has set out to debunk unscientific claims, um, and he wrote the book *Demon-Haunted World*. So, so in his, so so he, uh, Carl Sagan, the uh, astronomer. So he's he's a serious debunker. He's a serious debunker of anything non-scientific. And he says, there are three claims in parapsychology field which, in my opinion, deserve serious study. The third of which was that young children sometimes report details of a previous life which, upon checking, turned, uh, turned out to be accurate and which they could not have known about in any other way than reincarnation slash rebirth. So it's kind of interesting for me if the um, serious debunker Carl Sagan says, hmm, there might be something here. There might be something here. Again, not to believe, just just to hold it very lightly. There might be something here. There might be something here. Who knows? And again, hold it with a don't-know mind. Who knows? And, and not needing to know. Being okay with not knowing. That's part of the practice. In terms of NDE experiences, near-death experiences, also, there are many, many accounts. Um, There is a Dutch author and researcher who is a cardiologist, actually, um, at Utrecht University uh, in the Netherlands. And um, he's done extensive research on near-death experiences. Because it turns out, in cardiology, when the heart stops, then people, th- there's been many cases of people being dead, being clinically dead for minutes. And many times when they come back, uh, when they return, then um, there are reports of... Um, there's, th- there's some similarities. There's often similarities between what is um, what is shared. Um, there's often this description of going through a tunnel, um sometimes a description of uh, being with a being of light. Um, and different people describe it very differently, depending on what you believe in. Um, could be seen as Jesus, Buddha. Um, there is a case of a, a, a kid who, um, this being of light, who was completely, by the way, the being of light is completely compassionate and loving. And one reportedly feels completely loved and safe by by this being of light. And for this kid, um, the the vision was of, uh, was um, one of the teenage mutant ninja turtles uh, who's apparently Raphael, who's like the embodiment of wisdom and love and compassion. I don't have kids, so I had to look this up. I think that's... (laughs) So... um, And there's often a report of loved ones who've passed away, and um, and that there's no much, not so much that somebody's judging you, but that you, that uh, people, some people report that they get to feel, they they get to have a life review, a very quick life review of every moment of their life in those couple of minutes that they're gone, like the whole life, and and they feel the effect of every action they've had, not just on themselves, but on others. So nobody's judging them, you did wrong, you're good, bad. It's like, ouch, ouch, I said this, ooh. ah. Uh. So just kind of seeing the effect. And often the reports are they, that they get to a threshold um, and they're given a choice. And, um, and people who come back, of course, they say that they had unfinished business. In the world, that's that's what the reports are. Again, who knows? Who knows? Um, there, there is one report by um, a woman, Anita Morjani, who um, had metastasized cancer throughout her body, and and she wrote her experience of dying, um, and then coming back from the experience, and then the the metastas- uh, the the cancer completely healing, which seemed pretty impossible given how advanced her cancer was. But in her book, um, the name of the book is Dying to Be Me, My Journey from Cancer to Near Death to to True Healing. What she says is, in my NDE state, I realized that the entire universe is composed of unconditional love. And I am an expression of this. Every atom, molecule, quark, tetraquark is made of love. I can be nothing else because this is my essence and the nature of the entire universe. Even things that seem negative are all part of the infinite, unconditional spectrum of love. So, again, without believing that it's one way or the other and not fixating, not wanting, not clinging to a belief, holding it all like, mm, maybe. One thing that I appreciate about these descriptions is that What's described is not so far away from sublime states of mind that when we are practicing in this moment of life, being fully, fully alive, right here on the seat, feeling... Love, feeling unconditional love for everyone in the room, feeling compassion, feeling care, is just feeling ah, the feeling the goodness, feeling the love for the land, feeling that the land loves us back, just feeling that right here, right now. It's not so far away, it's right here. It's all right here. We just have to kind of whoop, get out of our tight head, me, mind, this, that. Like, it's already all right here. And that is something that is not, again, not to hold on to. It's already here, there's nothing to hold on to. It's just to, to swim in, to, to be free in. It's actually through freedom that we can, when, when we have more freedom and we don't feel tight, is when we actually are more in touch with the, with the ease, with the love, with the openness, with the care that is all around. So I want to move on to the the second part, the second triad of the talk, which is the awakening to life as part of the theme of this retreat. There is this song by Dido, which I really like, and and, um, the title of the song is Life for Rent. And um, I won't torture you by trying to sing uh, the song, but the lyrics go something like, you know, my life is for rent. And to me that's, it just, it's very interesting. In a way, this, I mean, not, maybe rent is not, you know, for me it kind of works like, wow, yeah, this, I'm a traveler. This whole thing is for rent. I don't really, I, I don't own anything. I'm just borrowing all these clothes. I'm wearing and where I'm living. It's just, it's all, I'm kind of borrowing everything as I'm a traveler traveling through this world. Um, And while we're traveling through this world, while we're alive, contemplating death helps us clarify our priorities. How are we going to travel? How are we traveling? What is, what is, our meaning, what is what is meaningful for us, it gives more. It, it for many people, it it gives um, it highlights the importance of ethics, the essence, relationships. All of those become more important. There's a quote by Jack Cornfield. I don't have it here, but it goes something like, "If you." If you talk, if you've had the privilege of talking with people on their deathbeds, often they don't say, I wish I had worked more. I wish I had written more books. I wish I had made more money. Basically the questions are very simple. Did I live well? Did I love well? Did I learn to let go? It just becomes really simple. So by awakening to life, bringing more awareness, for example, to our relationships, Are they as rich as they can be with the finality of death? Can we take our relationships less for granted if we are doing that? If we are taking some for granted, can we do that less? Can we be more present for someone else if we, when we have more peace in us, it also, it allows us to be more present for other people Ajahn Chah says, when I know that the glass is already broken, every minute with it is precious. I love that. With this contemplation of death, for our life, gratitude can arise, as people have mentioned, both in the hall and in various interviews, and you might have felt gratitude, actually how many people have had a feeling of gratitude come up at some point on the retreat? Lots of people, yeah. That's what happens when you practice. And if it has happened, hasn't happened yet, it will happen, it will come up, it's a part of this. It's kind of fabric of this territory. It takes its own time, it's like a soup, it simmers. It'll. You can't force it, it just, it takes its time. Stephen Stuckey, the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, died um, in New Year's Eve 2014 um, after a a battle with pancreatic cancer when he was 67 years old. And um, what I'd like to share with you is what he wrote while he was ill. um, Part of Thanksgiving reflections on gratitude. So contemplating his death and, and sharing the gratitude. That comes up here. So he says, "The challenge of this practice often slaps me in the face and sets off a series of seemingly impossible barriers." These days, as you know, as you may know, I wake up and say gratitude, and the next thought is, uh, "Let's let's see, yeah." I wake up and say gratitude, and the next thought is pain in the belly or cancer, or it's not fair. To accept such thoughts with gratitude may be impossible and even contribute to further unwholesome states of mind. So it is realistically healthier to enter this practice by creating a field of positive energy by first naming what you know from experience is nourishing for you. For example, gratitude for my friend Larry, or gratitude for my mentor, my lover, my mother, the person who changed my life. Of gratitude for sobriety, my family, this food, the sunlight, mashed potatoes, and gravy, the capacity for healing, etc. It quickly becomes clear that one can create an infinite list of positive nourishments and the mere fact of being alive tells one that positive, that is life-supporting factors, outweigh all others. This is a basis of this is a basis for fundamental confidence in reality. Know that this life is rare and wonderful because it is happening right now with the full support of the universe. Wow. Once the above truth is clear, it is not so difficult to be kind. One naturally wants to give back to that from which one has received so much. And since one has received and is now receiving so much from the mere existence of each other, it is a perfect time to say, thank you, I love you. I invite you to take up this practice today as a positive nourishment practice for yourself. As you do so, I feel even more gratitude and delight. Love, Mugen Steve. I love that. He has thank you, and in parentheses, I love you. So basically the thank you is an expression of I love you. So contemplating our short time, this, that we don't have an eternity. Don't have an eternity. Appreciating what is, appreciating that we are alive, the agency, this, this body that can feel and see and touch and smell and all the amazing things it does, thinking, even difficult thoughts, even difficult emotions. Wow! How cool is that? Just, just the awe of it all, appreciation of it all. And also, it, it brings up brings up forgiveness, brings up in the heart. Because time is short. Time is short. Forgiving ourselves and forgiving others as much as possible. Again, as it has come up in practice meetings and might have come up for you, that when we realize time is short, the mind naturally goes towards the areas, the areas that there's still unresolved issues, and need, there's conflict that need to be let go, the forgiveness that we need to offer ourselves because we're not that person anymore. Offering ourselves forgiveness as much as possible. Forgiving our other people as much as possible. Again, not necessarily because they deserve it, whether or not they deserve it, but it's because for the freedom of our own heart, that's why we practice forgiveness. It's for the freedom of our own heart. Because when we don't forgive, guess who's in prison? Yep, we're in prison. We're suffering when we're not forgiving. Whether, you know, whether if the conflict situation, if the person hasn't come, asked for forgiveness, will never come. It's still, whether or not they deserve it just for Offering ourselves freedom, freeing ourselves, letting go. What are you hanging on to this afternoon as you did the exercise? If there are any grudges, any unresolved eh in your life, by yourself or others, what are you hanging on to? What are you hanging on to? And also in this act of the letting go, the letting go. It's also when it comes to death contemplation is sometimes we need to let go, give permission, release people we love that it's okay for them to die. I think sometimes when there, there are people in our lives that we care about and they care about us so much, there is. there might be this feeling of you know, they can't go, they still have to be here to take care of us. And sometimes it's okay to say, it is okay, you can go. Release them, let them go, set them free. The last, the third and last part I would like to very briefly touch upon is um, brief because time is short. Pun intended. (laughs) Is um, that this practice, this practice of maranasati, contemplating death is a liberating practice. It's not just to prepare for our death and to awaken to life. It's actually a liberating practice. That's what we're doing here. We're practicing towards liberation, freedom, awakening, nibbana, whatever word you want to give it, deathless, it's also called, called, unconditioned. This is that practice. That's why it's called the supreme practice because it includes it all. By practicing Death contemplation, we get to see what's called the three marks of existence, which are very traditional Buddhist teachings which you might have heard before. The three marks of existence, the three characteristics, they're also called. And the Vipassana, insight practice, by the way, um, is a practice of seeing the three characteristics is said in the in the sutta, is translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So the three characteristics, the three marks, the three perceptions, the three ways of perceiving, one is impermanence. Hello, impermanence. We've been looking at impermanence, right? Big impermanence, little impermanence, medium-sized impermanence, it's all, imper- it's all arising and passing away, right? We've been looking at the big impermanence quote unquote of us arising and passing away and then there, and then again as you have been talking you've been seeing all these little impermanences arising and passing away in your experience so seeing impermanence so many kinds of deaths goodbyes losses divorce moving away loss of friendship contact or just little impermanences in in the last, in this morsel of food, oh, it's gone. Seeing the bird, oh, gone, impermanence. It's, everything arises and passes away. Everything, seeing impermanence everywhere. So it's already come up for you, I don't have to tell you. And that's a doorway. That's a seeing impermanence, seeing that there is nothing to hang on to, as we keep saying, there is nothing to hang on to. It all arises and passes away. It's all arising and passing away in every moment. This moment, gone. Not this, gone, 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 gone. It, it just, it's, every, it's just passing. Everything, every sight, every thought, every, every sensation came and went, came and went, came and went. It's just a series of moments that are stitched together. There's nothing really hanging, to hang on to. Nothing, it all passes. no matter how wonderful, how great, it comes and it goes. How amazingly tasty that chocolate is. The moment you taste it, it's gone. It just just all passes, everything. And then, the second of the characteristics, anatta, or not-self. And we've been contemplating that too, by the way. This body, for example, this body is not yours. It's impersonal. It's nature. You can't stop it from aging. You can't stop it from dying, no matter how hard you try. It's not yours. When you get a cut and it heals, you're not doing anything. It's it's doing its thing. When you eat, the digestion happens. It's impersonal. When you're seeing, if you could try, you you don't even, I mean, we don't know how to do these things. It just does it. Like, you know, when you're a newborn, because you're learning to talk and things like that, but you come with all this equipment that just functions. Right? It sees and touches and tastes and, and wants food and gets away from unpleasant and wants pleasant. It's just all, it's impersonal. It's completely impersonal. That's anatta. That's one way of, of practicing seeing impersonality or, or seeing the bodies decomposing. Like, oh, this body, too. It's not me, it's not mine. It's impersonal, ungovernable. It's not governable. Tell yourself right now to stop aging from this moment on. Govern it. Come on, get it together. It's ungovernable. It's not personal, it's uncontrollable. It's just nature, it's natural. It's just nature, to see that this is just nature. And not just the body, but the mind also. I want to bring that in, because we've been talking about that too, right? To see, it's easier often to see the impersonality of the body. Impersonality of the mind, we identify with our our thoughts all the time. But guess what, it's also the same. When you, because of all the conditioning that this body, this mind has gone through, right? A certain thought comes up because of all that conditioning. You don't make the thoughts come up. You don't fabricate them. Pay attention. Pay attention. You will see. You will see that the thoughts are being, coming up on their own. And we can get into brain science, but... There's so much impersonality that we just identify with, not to say that you you don't have responsibility. That free that doesn't free us up from responsibility. We still have responsibility, and yet to see to to see that yeah, just coming up. Yep, judgment, planning, this that because of because of all the the um the patterns, the grooves of the habits, of the habits of the mind. Because of the grooves in your brain, because of the habits you have, that's, those are the, the thoughts that are just will continue to be bopping up. I can say more about that, but maybe later. I do want to get to dukkha. Dukkha, the third of the characteristics often translated as suffering, but also translated as stress or unsatisfactoriness. And we've been practicing with that here. We've been practicing with, with the unsatisfactoriness. I, I like this quote from Woody Allen. Life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering, and it's all over much too soon. It's like life sucks and it's too short. <laughs> it's that kind of a thing. But practicing with, with seeing unsatisfactoriness, that life is their difficulty, there is, there is unsatisfactoriness inherent in this body, in this mind, and wanting, not wanting, um, not nothing inherently being satisfactory. And that... Seeing the dukkha, seeing the unsatisfactoriness, seeing the suffering opens the heart to compassion for ourselves and for others. We're all in this boat together. We all suffer together in this life. Life is not easy. This is is not an easy deal we've got on this planet and this body doing this thing. We're doing this humanity thing. Have you noticed that already? Life is not easy. 10,000 joys, and yep, 10,000 sorrows. It's got them all. And that opens the heart. It just naturally does. That's the most natural response of the heart, is compassion to the pain. It's the salve. It's the salve that soothes suffering pain. By adding more self-judgment by trying to make it go away, pushing it away, it never goes away, it's by holding it, by opening the heart, by gentleness, tenderness, compassion. And when we do that for ourselves, when we see that for ourselves, when, when grief, lamentation, sorrow, sadness, when we are doing death contemplation and our heart breaks to our own suffering and we hold it with compassion, Our heart opens up to compassion for others and we can be there for them. I think that's enough for now. Let's just sit together in silence. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Love says I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Thank you for your kind attention.